So can we talk a little bit about the landscape of vaccine development? Um, there seems to be a lot. Sorry, I'm going <laughs> to cats. Hang on. <laughs> hey, Jenny, I have a joke for you. Okay. What is the coronavirus's least favorite drink? No idea. Ramdesa beer. Get it? Beer? Oh. <laughs> I think it can use some work. Okay. But it is a good segue to our podcast because last week we talked to Emily Nelson, who is a virologist, and we talked about all things coronavirus, including remdesivir. And we have a few facts that we need to add that have developed since we actually recorded the podcast which are relevant to deciding whether or not the coronavirus does or does not like remdesivir because we're trying to understand how effective it actually is. So what, what kind of information do we have so far? So there is a study from The Lancet that was done in Hubei, China. It was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial involving 10 hospitals, so gold standard trial relatively small numbers. There are 158 people that were randomized to remdesivir, 79 to placebo, and the primary endpoint for the trial was time to clinical improvement. And what they unfortunately found was that there's no difference between the placebo and remdesivir-treated patients in terms of their time to clinical improvement. They did, however, note a trend towards a faster time to clinical improvement. Yes, it should be noted that um, that trial actually had to end early because China was so successful in controlling the epidemic. And so they just literally had no more patients to enroll in that trial after March 12th of 2020. So perhaps a little bit underpowered. Correct. So what we've now heard about from Anthony Fauci, now patron, saint, and household name, Uh, is that Gilead, the company that makes remdesivir, also the same name as the dystopian country in Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, Uh, they have run a clinical trial that is much larger. So randomized controlled trial involving approximately 1,000 patients. And what they noted was that their preliminary results, and I should say this study has not been published yet. It's just been spoken about um, in press releases. So what they have seen is that patients who received remdesivir had a median time to recovery that was 11 days as compared to 15 days to the patients who had placebo. So it shortens the time to recovery and is actually approximately equivalent to oseltamivir, the drug that we can give patients who have the flu. Another drug name that sounds like a craft brew. Right, you could do oseltamivir. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. You could do the HIV drugs. We have a business idea. Okay. Um, Interestingly, the results also from that trial showed a trend towards a survival benefit. So a mortality rate of 8% for the group who got remdesivir in comparison to 11.6% for the placebo group. But the p-value there was 0.059. Or in science speak, not significant. Yeah. So I think we're all, uh, I mean, I think we're all a little bit disappointed. We wanted this drug to be a 
not a cure, but something that would help treat the disease to the extent that we could consider reopening the country in a faster timeline. And uh, I mean, Jenny, do you want to talk a little bit about where this drug even came from, like what the origins were? So um, it was actually developed when SARS-1 became um, an epidemic, which that epidemic was curbed. It had spread around Asia, but then it became controlled and then it petered out. And then Gilead had this antiviral drug that had been developed and they decided to try to treat Ebola with it. Um, and it actually failed in clinical trials for treating of for treating Ebola. And so now we're at SARS-2 and Gilead is trying to repurpose it for SARS-2. And um, we did just want to clarify because in the interview you're about to hear, this was before Anthony Fauci had announced the latest results of Gilead. So Quinn and Emily sound even more pessimistic about remdesivir. But um, it does seem like that even though it's not the miracle cure that I think a lot of us were hoping for, it does seem like there are some positive results that are coming out from the remdesivir trials. And I think the hope is that this will be followed by another round of drugs that are more specific to this coronavirus that will hopefully be even more effective. Yep. So without further delay, here is our full podcast. Welcome to All About That Base, a podcast about your genes and the people who study them. I'm one of your hosts, Quinn Sievers, and we also have Jenny Chen. And uh, today we have the pleasure of speaking to Emily Nelson. Uh, Emily is a postdoc in a virology lab studying Ebola in the virus immunology group at the, Emily, you're going to have to correct my pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, but the Bernard Nocht Institute for Tropical Medicine. That was perfect. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Emily, so we wanted to chat with you about your involvement in the COVID-19 literature surveillance team. But I thought first we could just learn a little bit more about you. Um, maybe you could just take us what got you interested in science and where did you do your scientific training before you landed in um the virus immunology group. Um, yeah, so I did my PhD in, in Boston, actually, where um, I met you two, um, funnily enough. Um, so I studied at Boston University, and I did, um, my focus was microbiology and immunology. Um, and we worked, I worked there um, with the, the National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratories, which is the high containment lab that, um, that was built at Boston University. Um, and I focused my research there on, on Ebola virus and sort of the interactions between cells and Ebola virus um, and some of the innate immune responses that, that take place. Um, and then I came here to, to Hamburg where I'm at the Bernard Nocht Institute. Um, and I'm, we're also studying Ebola virus, um, but we do a lot of things with other hemorrhagic fever viruses like Lassa virus and, and Marburg virus. And we're starting to do now some studies with um, the, the novel coronavirus, SARS, SARS coronavirus 2. So we do a lot of different things. Um, our group also has a couple of projects that are based in different countries in Africa, where we focus on things like 
um, capacity building, outbreak preparedness, um, diagnostic training, uh, with also a little bit of, of basic research thrown in. So we're really interested in looking at the, the viruses that are endemic to these areas, like, like Ebola, um, in their natural habitats, and trying to understand better what's going on at the interface between wildlife and humans and how these spillover events, like um, like the, the outbreak that's going on right now, um, how these events take place. Mm-hmm. So that's that's more or less what we, we do um, in the lab. Um, I also have a little bit of experience in outbreak response. I was in um, Sierra Leone during the, the West African Ebola virus outbreak in 2015. And I was working with um, the Dutch mobile response team so they had this this really these really cool mobile laboratories that were basically tractor trailers that they had converted into sort of modified high containment labs that you could do diagnostics in safely um, and they could also be moved around to wherever they needed to be. So that was pretty cool. Um, we were there in Sierra Leone doing Ebola diagnostics. So I'm I'm really more of a an Ebola virus girl, um, as you can see, but um, is I'm that also really on your interested. dating app uh, <laughs> description? I try, to keep, <laughs> I try to keep that out of out of public knowledge. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm also really interested in in highly pathogenic viruses in general and some of the outbreak response and and preparedness side of things. So um, everything that's going on right now is the kind of stuff that you know we think about all the time at work and. Uh, it's just a new a new virus. Sounds like you guys are well positioned to kind of make contributions to this the field uh, now of coronaviruses. I was curious, um, what does a high containment lab entail? Like, what kind of uh, procedures do you need to go through to protect yourself mm-hmm. when you're going into and out of a high containment lab? Oh, there are so many. It's like uh, extreme PPE. Um, so there are, are four levels of, of biosafety containment, basically, um, with four being the top, the highest containment. Uh, and you wor- are working on pathogens that are all viruses, and they don't have vaccines, and they cause severe uh, disease in, in humans. Um, and so you have to be you know, really careful when you're working with these. You, you need to have a, a laboratory that's basically its own sort of independent unit. So all of the airflow into and out of the lab is, is filtered. Um, and when you, as a, as a researcher, when you enter the lab, you know, you, you have to wear um, a suit, basically, that's like kind of a space, space suit, and you're wearing three pairs of gloves, and you're connected to air, and you go in through this, like, um, airlock basically, and um, it's negative pressure so that nothing would would if there was a break in the window or something, nothing would would go out. All the air would be sucked in. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of a lot of chemicals involved. Um, when you when you exit the lab, you have to go through a decontamination shower, um, which uh, varies from lab to lab, but it's basically just like super concentrated acid that that you yeah wash yourself with for between five and ten minutes. Um, and then and are you, you, uh, are you washing yourself while you're in the suit? It's presumably not your skin, right? 
No, no, that would be terrible. Yeah. Okay. So you're in your suit, you're connected to air. So you're, it's also like these chemicals are really, but they create a lot of fumes that are definitely not good for you to breathe. Um, so you're connected to air and then you're just like, yeah, standing in a shower um, while it's kind of like a car wash for, mm. for people. You're just like going, standing there and rinsing yourself off. And then, you know, you get rinsed with, with air and water um, and you get out and then you change and you can take a shower, like a personal shower after, which, um, is not a bad bad thing because you get kind of disgusting um, working in that suit after mm. after too long. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that there's only there's a limited number of these BL4 facilities in like the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but there's maybe I don't know ten or twelve um, in the United States, and then. Um, there's, you know, I think we have four in Germany, there's one in, in Paris, there's so, you know, there's a handful scattered throughout the rest of the world, um, but yeah. most of them are, are in the U.S. Okay. Fascinating. Well, let's uh, switch gears and talk about the COVID-19 literature surveillance team. Could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what was the motivation to create this group and what you guys are doing? Sure, yeah. So the COVID-19 Literature Surveillance Team, or COVID-19 LST for short, is um, a project that I started working on just a few weeks ago, actually, with my friend Jasmine, who is one of the co-founders of the initiative. And she's currently a medical student who's finishing up um, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And since the outbreak started, she and I had been just talking on the phone a lot, discussing what was going on. And it, it was really cool because she she would give me more of the, the clinical side of things and I would provide more of the, the research and scientific side of things. So we were able to like really have some, some cool conversations about everything that was going on. And, um, you know, while we were talking, she brought up this idea that she had with the other co-founder, uh, whose name is Will Smith, actually. Um, but he's an MD who works in the military, and he has all of these other amazing credentials that um, would take me way too long to go through. Um, but you can look it up. Um, but their idea basically was to to distribute um, a daily literature report, more or less, that would summarize all of the publications that were out there each day in a way that was easy to read and accessible. Um, and the goal was to provide primarily healthcare workers or uh, hospital decision makers, local government officials, what have you, uh, with information that would help them make better and more informed decisions relative to things like patient care, testing, um, treatments. And so Jasmine asked me if I would serve as their scientific and, and technical advisor and help with some of the quality control aspects of evaluating literature and providing uh, succinct but accurate summaries, uh, things that scientists are, are really trained to do and that we do actually every day. So um, I, was, I was super happy to help. Uh, I was reading a lot of the literature anyway, just kind of for my own curiosity. Um, and I'm also, you know, a big proponent of improving communication between scientific and medical communities and the public. So I thought this was a really good chance for that to happen. Um, and they started with like just Will and Jasmine and a couple other people. And then I came and joined onto the team when they were still really small. And now they've we've really grown to I think we have over 50 people now who are all volunteers that are working on, on making this effort possible. So that's really awesome. Um, 
we have a website now that you can check out. And um, if you want to learn more, it's covid19lst.org. And we publish these reports on our website every day. Uh, we have some other COVID-19 related information up there. Like we have these, um, those really cool like tracker apps from WHO and CDC up there. Um, so you can like stay on top of, of the cases and everything. Um, and we have some podcast ideas in the works. So we're constantly trying to, to improve the quality of, of our reports and expand our reach as far as we can. Um, and we're, we're hoping to implement some new stuff on the website to make it even easier for people to access and sort through all of the information uh, that's out there right now because everything is changing so rapidly and we're seeing so many publications come out every day which you know isn't necessarily a new concept we see we see this sort of thing happen whenever something kind of blows up like this we we definitely saw it for for things like Ebola and for, and for Zika so you just have so much data that's being poured out there, which on the one hand is a really good thing, um, but then you also have some journals that are suspending peer review and things that are kind of getting pushed out, I think, faster than they should be. So we are just trying to be um, aware of this and do the best job that we can in conveying um, information in a way that is, is realistic and honest um, and not misleading. Uh, we've seen things like the hydroxychloroquine and, and now kind of remdesivir were promoted early on as being two drugs that really had the potential to be uh, effective. But now we're seeing trials um, and studies come out that are showing quite the opposite. Um, so not only do they seem to not be effective, but they are also potentially um, people are dying uh, mm -hmm. from high doses. So I'm really focused on making sure that the summaries we provide and the types of studies that get put in these reports are upfront about the limitations, um, which is okay. Like, of course, it's okay to have limitations, um, but you have to be honest about them. And we need to be, we're trying to be as precise as possible in terms of the language that, that we're putting out there. So we don't promote bad studies uh, that have the potential to, to go really wrong. This sounds like an amazing resource. And I know just anecdotally, there's tons of COVID-19 research going out there but do you have a better sense of the actual numbers or volume of studies coming in because i mean you guys have 50 people now and um it sounds like that was necessary to actually keep track of everything yeah so originally the idea was that we were only going to put out publications from like the top 15 journals or we, we kind of had had narrowed it down to a list of, of much smaller journals um but then you know we we thought that it's better to just put out more information and we started really, really expanding. So we needed to have people to, to help because we were just reading so many articles each day and I'm still working full time. So it's been, um, it's been a lot. Uh, so having more people has helped a lot. And, you know, at our peak, I think things are starting to slow down a little bit. Um, but, you know, just a couple of days ago, we had, I think, over 250 articles that, that we were going through and um, we're trying to put them out in real time, uh, as close to real time as we can. So it's, it's a lot. Um, and, you know, because we're so focused on making sure that we really go through all of these papers um, carefully and, and think critically about them, it's, you know, it takes some time to read through them. Um, and then, yeah, all of the formatting and all of these small things um, just take so much time and manpower. And how are so you it's, guys? It's a lot. Yeah. 
how are you guys thinking about articles that are being put out on places like BioArchive or MedArchive? Are you paying attention to those or are you waiting for them to at least be pre-screened by a journal? Yeah, that's a good question. So for me as a scientist, I like to look on those like archives and preprint websites because they're, I think they're a really good tool, particularly in a time like this when research is moving so fast. Um, they're a really good way to share data um, in a, that, so that people can you know, make progress quickly. Um, but at the same time, they are often not peer reviewed and um, which is of course problematic. So we decided that we weren't going to, to review any of those articles um, and just wait until they were actually published. So I'm curious from your perspective as having gone through all the papers, what are sort of the main silos or topics that you see research on and and what maybe what are the um, most important topics that you really focus on for this for this surveillance um, literature surveillance project um yeah so for the the covid lst team we're focused primarily on literature that is more clinically based or relevant um, because uh, it's you know it was founded by an md but also you know they're trying to really focus in on patients um patients receiving the biggest benefit. Um, so we're seeing a lot of papers that are, at this point, mostly descriptive. Um, they focus on characterizing the course of disease in different populations and different patients um, among people with different comorbidities like diabetes and obesity. Um, they're also talking about you know, how to treat people who are on different types of drugs, um, and if those patients should continue taking those drugs if if they're infected or if they um, are higher risk. Um, there are also a lot of retrospective sort of analyses that look at different aspects of the disease over time, like um, things like viremia or different clinical parameters. Uh, some some immunology stuff is being done if if they have patient samples. Um, on the, the more basic research side of things, it's still really early for, for research because, yeah, we're focused on trying to find treatments and um, even just characterize the disease in, in the hospitals is something that we're still, you know, finding out information about every day. Um, but the more basic research side, we're, we're seeing a lot of papers that um, are looking at the the kind of evolutionary origins uh, of the virus, so the SARS coronavirus 2, um, mostly through published sequence data. So they're trying to figure out, you know, where it may have spilled over from the animal reservoir into the human population and, and how it evolved. Um, and this also involves a lot of direct comparisons with other similar viruses like uh, SARS or MERS, which are two other closely related coronaviruses. And I think, um, SARS and SARS-2 share like 70% uh, sequence uh, identity. So they're, they're quite similar. Um, so the focus has been a lot on comparing it with, with more known viruses and, uh, and infections, um, and then also at the kind of epidemiological side of things. Um, and then of course, the other big topic that we're seeing a lot of papers on are drug discovery papers or yeah, trying to find uh, potential therapeutics. Um, and there are a lot of cool things that are being done um, just with computers where they are screening hundreds of different drugs um, that are already either FDA approved or are involved in some sort of clinical trial, drugs that we know more about in terms of uh, efficacy and safety. 
And so they use their fancy computer models and they can determine mostly based on the structure of these molecules and the known structure of different viral proteins. So as we're learning more about the virus, we can become more specific in, in types of like crystal structures of the, the glycoprotein, which is really important. Um, but at the very beginning, they were kind of comparing it to, to SARS um, the, because, you know, we have the, the crystal structure of all of the, the SARS proteins, so we can compare um, and, and hope and kind of speculate that perhaps these drugs would also work for, for COVID-19. But until we, we start to see more papers that are in in vitro or in vivo models, um, those, you know, prediction studies are, are not super, super helpful, I would say. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the big the big topics right now um, that we're seeing in the literature. So I wanted to discuss a little bit about if you're seeing any literature about diagnostics, because we're hearing so much about how the key to reopening is testing and ramping up testing. And I was curious mm -hmm. um, as to whether or not um, the barriers to ramping up testing was something at like the scientific academic stage where we need more um, methods um, to do it, or if there isn't as much research being published about diagnostics because the barriers are really, you know, at the, at the manufacturing stage or the supply chain stage? So that's a really good question. Um, and unfortunately, I, I think my answer is that there are a lot of barriers. Um, it's a little bit depressing. But at the most basic level, um, things like the availability of reagents, kind of like you mentioned, is a really big problem. So, you know, these tests are not simple two-ingredient recipes or anything. They require a lot of different reagents that are part of different kits that are also not cheap. Um, and they require specific machines that only certain people who are trained on um, can use. So if you overload the system, kind of like we've seen, and you want to do thousands and thousands of tests in one week, you're going to be really limited by the simplest things like money, um, manpower, and reagents, even if your test is you know, the most perfect test in all of the world and is 100% specific. Um, the other big barrier I would say to testing has been kind of a lack of oversight and coordination. Um, and this seemed to be kind of a problem that the U.S. faced uh, when we were first developing the tests and figuring out the best way to get tests to hospitals and clinics. Um, because everything was happening so quickly, we started to see research labs and hospitals and companies all sort of independently developing their own tests or um, ones that were not validated by the CDC or WHO or approved by the FDA. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you can see the logic behind this because uh, we do need to move quickly and waiting for specific regulations to be implemented could could be could take too long. Um, so it's important that we try to get things developed as quickly as possible. Um, but this is also at the same time putting a lot of faith and trust in these companies in particular who are developing these tests. Um, and, you know, so there's always maybe a little bit of a conflict of interest between quality and, and profits. And when things are not being regulated and when people are using, you know, different genes for, for the PCR test uh, as targets or different, um, even in the antibody tests, they can, can, they can vary. And so this is also kind of a barrier to, to widespread testing. Um, that's, that's also accurate widespread testing, which is what we need. We've heard a lot now about these antibody tests, and I was wondering if you could talk about, yeah, what are the 
the significance of the using different proteins as the um, targets for these antibody tests. And you also mentioned uh, that you want a test to be very specific, and if you could kind of define that. Sure. Um, so, so currently there are two different tests. Um, there's the PCR-based test and the, the antibody test. So the antibody test um, is totally different than the PCR version. Um, it's based on the presence of, of virus-specific antibodies in your blood, basically. So, um, so this test uses peripheral blood samples. So in that sense, it's a little bit more invasive than the the PCR test. Um, although those swabs don't look very <laughs> they don't look yeah. very fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, for me, I really hate needles. <laughs> so I got the antibody test, and that was a little bit of a struggle for me. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so so the the antibody test is not measuring any part of the virus in your system or anything. It's measuring a component of your own immune system. And um, so if you had the infection, you would likely develop um, SARS two specific antibodies. Um, but this isn't going to tell you uh, if you have an active infection likely because just because of the the nature of antibodies and how they develop, they take usually about two weeks is kind of the, the textbook answer for when antibodies develop. So um, depending on the, the course of infection, you you may have cleared it already and, and then you would see antibodies. So it's telling you a very different thing than, um, than the PCR test, um, but it's still a useful test. However, it does have different limitations. So going back to, to specificity and, and also sensitivity. and. This is, these are problems that are, are not specific to, you know, to COVID-19. It's, a, it's a, a problem that all of these serological tests uh, face. So sensitivity is an indicator of the test. So a highly sensitive serological test would be able to detect very small amounts of, of virus-specific antibodies circulating throughout your body. Um, and specificity is more what it sounds like. So a highly specific test would be able to identify antibodies that recognize the virus uh, and not other similar viruses like SARS or MERS. And this could be a concern um, with an antibody test because SARS-2 is closely related to SARS. Um, and sorry, I should have clarified from the beginning. Uh, SARS coronavirus two is is the proper name for the virus, but it's easier just to say SARS two. So when I say SARS two, that's what I mean. Got it. Um, okay. So SARS coronavirus two or SARS two is is closely related to SARS. We know this. Um, it shares about seventy percent sequence identity and has very similar proteins. So um, if you were infected with SARS, you could potentially have antibodies that would cross-react then with, with uh, SARS coronavirus 2. Um, and it's unlikely that a, lot, a significant portion of people would be infected with SARS or MERS, but there are a lot of uh, other coronaviruses that are related to, to this virus um, that cause things like the common cold. Uh, so it is possible that you may have developed antibodies to other similar viruses uh, that you know, we're just from a cold, uh, and these would then be picked up in the the antibody test. So, this would be a false positive, which which is not not good. Um, yeah, and and actually, one of the theories about um, why kids seem to maybe be less susceptible to the virus is that they may have some sort of immunity that has been developed against these these common cold viruses that are more 
more constantly circulating in groups of children than in the rest of us. Um, so this immunity might be cross-reactive to, to SARS-2 and, and maybe giving them a leg up in, in fighting the infection. And at this point, are you guys seeing more publications on the PCR-based testing, which is looking for, it's measuring the virus and looking for active infection, or are you seeing more of now the antibody testing data coming in? Yeah, so now we're starting to see more of the antibody testing and more focus on the antibody testing. The good thing about the, the RT-PCR, the PCR reaction, is that it's a pretty well-established uh, method. Uh, you really only need the sequence information of the virus, and you can you can make a, a really nice sensitive test. Uh, so in that sense, it didn't need as much validation as, as some of the antibody tests do. Um, and the antibody tests just there's so much more variability because you're dealing with, you know, patient samples and antibodies, and you you are not quite sure which antigens or which parts of the virus would drive which parts of your immune system to provide, uh, uh, sorry, to make uh, these specific antibodies. So it's really complicated, actually. Um, and how do yeah. you choose what proteins made by the virus to use as the targets for your antibody testing? So my understanding is that you have these, you have like the spike protein that helps it get into cells. You have the other structural proteins that help make the capsid, and then there's stuff inside the capsid. And so how do you pick which of those you think will um, demonstrate immunity? Yeah, that's a really good question. So at this point, we kind of have been guessing based on like highest probability um, from, you know, what we know about other viral infections. Um, so we can look at, um, yeah, what we know from, from things like Ebola virus. So we know that if you're infected with Ebola virus, um, we see patients that have a lot of antibodies directed against the glycoprotein. So the glycoprotein is um, thought to be one of the more immunogenic uh, viral proteins, meaning that it you know, um, promotes an immune response in your system. So until we really know more about this specific virus, we're kind of just guessing um, a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, so that's also why we are starting to see more papers about the antibody tests as we learn more about the virus and you know we we understand more about the immune response to the virus because not all viral proteins are um, are necessarily the same amount of they don't share the same amount of immunogenicity so um, there are different things that that the virus can do actually that can prevent uh, it being recognized by the immune system. So there are all of these factors that, that really determine um, the types of antibodies that you would you would develop naturally in an infection. Uh, so yeah, until we have more research out there, it's it's just a bit of a guessing game and, and piecing things together. Okay, so it sounds like the PCR test is a more well-established test. So not so much literature is coming in about that at this point, but that we're seeing a rise in publications on the antibody testing, which it sounds like is much more complicated. And we're guessing a little bit about which viral proteins um, to look at as the targets of these antibodies. And I, it sounds like as the data comes in, we'll find out which test is the best and hopefully start using that one. 
Yeah, and it's really important that um, to, to know that they, they are two totally different tests. And the antibody test now is, is sort of the hope in using this test is that we can identify people, how far the, the virus basically was able to penetrate the, the population. So we will understand more about um, not only the types of antibodies and the antibody responses that um, people mount against the virus, but we'll see maybe people who never got sick, who seroconverted, and which indicates that they had some sort of infection. We'll, so we'll get a better understanding of yeah people who might have been asymptomatic, but were infected. Um, which will impact things like the case fatality rates. You know, the more that we know about who was infected and um, and even when they were infected, will will help us get a better understanding of of the epidemic as a whole. So I wanted to move on to talking about the virology of um, SARS-CoV-2 because there seems to be so little that we still understand about. You know, like once we get infected um, and we mount an immune response and you do see these antibodies if that provides lasting immunity. Um, so I'm curious, maybe you can first go over uh, the state of current knowledge about the virology of SARS-CoV-2. And then I was also curious about why we don't have concrete answers yet. Is it like lack of animal models? Is it just that these experiments take time and we need to wait longer? Um, yeah, that's, that's those are both good questions. Um, so on the virology side, a lot of focus has been on kind of like I mentioned, the evolution of the virus and understanding where it came from uh, in, in animals. Um, and where, you know, we know what the receptor is, which is really useful, um, but we're still in the process of developing good um, animal models, which is going to be really one of the barriers um, to making progress um, on the, in that sense. But I mean, you can do a lot of things without animals that are still still really useful. Um, so, but it, yeah, we're still kind of in the early stages, I would say, in terms of understanding the really, in my opinion, more interesting things about the virus, um, because viruses are really, really interesting and really, um, in a weird way, smart. Um, so I'm really looking forward to when we can figure out um, sort of the more nitty gritty details uh, on the virology side. Um, what you brought up about the immune system is is really, really important because this is a really big piece of the puzzle that is still missing at this point. Um, but it's really, really critical because um, I'm sure you, you've you've heard people kind of start to talk about how we're going to lift some of the, the social isolation restrictions. Um, and some people have been talking about things like immunity certificates, um, the logistics of which I think would be will be really interesting to see. Um, how how that could potentially end up. But this strategy really depends on us being much more confident than we are now about how immunity to, to this virus lasts, how long it lasts um, post-infection, um, and the, the strength of, of your immune response um, after this in infection. And similarly, we're, we're really not sure also if people can be reinfected or not. It seems, you know, the general feeling for most pathogens is that you do develop some sort of, of pretty good immunity that will last, but we just don't know at this point. So it's really dangerous to be making um, big decisions based on very little little data, uh, especially about about the immune response and if, immunological me memory. Sorry. If, 
someone asked you to kind of put your nickel down on your best guess, and we'll caveat it as a, a guess, <laughs> as to, like, I would say, A, whether we develop immunity, and B, if we do develop immunity, how long does it last for? Uh, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, so big caveat that I have <laughs> not done any research uh, on this specific topic, but I would say that it, it's probably likely that we do have some sort of, of memory. We are seeing some more studies come out looking at the immune response in patients, but you know we just don't have the time or the money right now to focus on, on those more immunological studies. But people have been sort of characterizing the immune response and we are learning a little bit more. Um, and we do, I think there are some studies looking at the antibody responses and showing that some of these antibodies that they're isolating from patients are able to neutralize the virus in vitro. But, you know, the sample sizes on these things are still really, really small. So until we, we have, you know, more robust ends, we're, we're going to have to wait until we make any big decisions um, about that. I see. So it sounds like it would be surprising if we did not have immunity, but that we want to confirm it before making these huge policy decisions with big implications. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that we probably have some some sort of immunity, but at the same time, like, I don't think I would really risk it. Like, I wouldn't risk my own personal health just based on, on the data that we have now. But is gathering this data literally just a matter of waiting? Because, you know, the earliest patients um, who developed COVID is from, what, December? And so um, at this point, even if we if we were able to study those patients again, that would still be like four months, only a four months of data. Yeah, yeah, so we're still at the really early stages for, for just about everything. Um, and that's why a lot of the literature that we're seeing in, in the COVID LST team is um, is mostly, yeah, basically characterizing um, patients in, in different scenarios and in different um, healthcare systems. That's also a big thing. Um, yeah, so it's really just we need more time. And um, like I said, we, we need to develop better animal models. The one thing that's really tricky about this the disease is that it, um, it affects different people differently. So you have older, older people that are at higher risk um, than, than perhaps younger people, although, you know, that's not a, a hard and fast rule. Um, but that's something that's kind of difficult to model, uh, particularly for animals. So do you do you use young animals, which is, is typically what, what we do um, with with mice, or do you age them and how do you go about doing that and how do you test the efficacy of drugs? Do you have to test them in all of these different types of animal models or in one? And when you're trying to do things as quickly as possible, then you know you have to, there, there are some trade-offs that you have to make. Um, and right now we just, we have to, to wait, unfortunately. What animals are used? I think I've heard like ferrets can be used for the flu, but yeah, what what animal models are kind of under consideration for the coronavirus infections? Yeah, so the animal people are really going wild. I think they're testing. They're no testing, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> they're testing so many different different uh, animal models. Not only are they testing it different models, but they're also curious about sort of the the animal reservoirs. So there's a paper. I came out where they were testing it and just to see if, if the animals could be infected and what the infection looked like in these in these animals, which also helps um, in 
in terms of developing a good animal model, but they infected like ferrets and cats and dogs, which was really hard for me to read through, and uh, I think pigs and a couple of different bird species. So yeah, they're really trying to see um, how many different animals they can infect with this virus. But sort of the gold standard typically for viruses like this um, is our non-human primates. So I know that there's a, a rhesus macaque model that seems to be pretty good. Um, they also use guinea pigs and hamsters, I, I think are also two animals that seem to to potentially be good candidates for, for an animal model. Um, and you can get really fancy with your animal models, like some of the mice that we have that have, you know, immune systems from from different um, different species. And so you can kind of make a, a humanized mouse that's that's like a yeah, like a little human test tube. Um, but it's still yeah, it's still a bit unclear. And there's just so many so many different factors that make it really difficult to have any one good specific model for this. I wanted to move on to talk about two pretty big topics. One is therapeutic development, so therapeutics that may be on the horizon that we can use to treat COVID-19, you know, within the next year. And then the second topic is vaccine development, which is something that sounds like it's going to take at least a year, probably longer. Um, So if we start with the therapeutics, um, I think you mentioned earlier that there was a lot of early hype about, um, I can never say the names right, hydroxy chloric you guys have to say <laughs> wait you were almost you there you almost said it Hyd- <laughs> hydroxychloroquinone yeah yeah that's it hydroxychloroquine okay. yeah okay. <laughs> oh hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir um what does the have we gotten any clinical data back about those two drugs yet and what does it look like it's not looking good, unfortunately. So yeah, these two drugs were kind of picked out early on um, for whatever reason. Um, there were some really small studies. And in fact, I think one of them, I don't remember which one, was was really just tested in, in a cell line um, and then was kind of taken into patients, which is a little bit scary to imagine. So um, there have been yeah, everybody's just kind of throwing anything and everything at the wall and seeing what sticks at this point, um, because it's it's like, how do you do you focus your attention on a couple of things, but you really don't know if if they will pan out in the end, or do you you know spread yourself a little bit thinner and try to examine as many drugs as you can at one time, but then you're you know really going through a lot of um, a lot of different potential drugs and treatments, which is is quite overwhelming. So unfortunately, I haven't really seen anything that seems to be really, really promising. Um, it was a lot of bad news this week, I think, about remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. And um, also... <laughs> what was the news exactly? So there have been, oops, there have been a couple of studies um, in, in, with hydroxychloroquine. I think there was a study that came out that uh, higher doses of hydroxychloroquine was fatal um, for some patients. And um, then they were seeing, also there was a trial recently with remdesivir, which was the other drug that they were kind of excited about that also just seemed to show no efficacy at all. Um, Yeah, so 
I know here um, in Hamburg, the university hospital here is also working on um, a trial with some of these drugs and they haven't really found anything um, promising yet either. So um, it seems like we're just kind of, yeah, plugging away and trying different things and, and hoping that we find we find things where, you know, the, the trend right now is, uh, which is, is not new by any means, but the trend has been to try and repurpose drugs uh, so that you can get them into patients a bit quicker. Uh, and if you if they already have safety trials done, then that's even better. Uh, but I mean, hydroxychloroquine was is a, is a known drug um, that is FDA approved already. And it's still, you know, what didn't work out the way that we had hoped. So it's still there's still a lot of um, progress that needs to be made in terms of treatments, I would say. Are you starting to see more papers that are broadening their reach in terms of, I guess, either testing a greater number of um, pre-existing therapeutics, and, and I guess versus maybe, I, th I think now I've started to see some of these crystallography papers and rational drug design where they're trying to make brand new drugs. Yeah, what, mm -hmm. have, from the, what has been the 20,000 foot view on your end? Ooh. It really seems like they're just um, going through any possible drug that's out there, uh, plugging it into their computer model to see if it will bind into the, the pocket of, you know, the, the glycoprotein or of the, <clears throat> the polymerase, which is, you know, an important enzyme for, for the virus uh, to survive. So, you know, they're, they're using best guesses at what the, the most likely targets uh, would be in the virus for success, which I think is really smart. And they're um, also using data from trials in um, trials for things like for MERS or for SARS. So we're not totally blind, but it does really feel like they're just, there's so many papers that are just like, yeah, we use this computer model and here are the 45 potential things that came out of it. So even though we're still kind of narrowing it down, there's still just so many things that people are suggesting. And until you test them in vitro, which also is a lot of work. So, you know, testing thousands and thousands of compounds in, in cell culture is a lot of work. And not only do you have to test thousands of different compounds, but you have to test, you know, different concentrations um, and yeah, so it's a lot of work and um, hopefully something kind of comes through, but um, yeah, at this point I, I haven't really seen anything that seems super, super promising. It sounds like we're still far out from any kind of, uh, there's no miracle cure that's coming down the pipeline right now. Yeah, unfortunately not. So can we talk a little bit about the current landscape of vaccine development? There was a lot of news, you know, about maybe a month ago about uh, Moderna pushing a vaccine into um, clinical trials. Um, and I think I think there's been more vaccines that have been pushed into clinical trials since then. Um, what again, what is your 20,000 view of how that's going and um, and what the timeline for vaccine development looks like? So um, I don't think that we will develop a vaccine anytime in the immediate future. My hope is more that we will develop some sort of therapeutic that kind of gets us to a point where we can keep things under control until we have a vaccine. Um, right now, uh, I think the WHO is trying to push uh, over 100 different vaccine candidates into 
to various types of trials, which is a lot. Um, again, kind of, yeah, we're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So what what I'm concerned about in terms of these vaccine trials is just the fact that they are going straight from, you know, somebody's bench um, into patients a lot of times um, because of the, the lack of good animal models that recapitulate human disease. And, and even if you have a good animal model, you know, it doesn't mean that a vaccine is going to be effective in humans. We still don't have a very great vaccine for Ebola virus that we're, you know, 100% confident in. And that's been something that has been studied since the 70s. So these things take a really long time. And when you are trying to do things as quickly as possible with um, not the, you know, the most ideal conditions or without the basic tools that you would need, it's, it's really, it's really tricky. Um, I think it's, it's great that people are volunteering for some of these early clinical trials um, and they're starting to pop up um, all over the place. My sister actually lives in Cincinnati and sent me an email about a, a clinical trial that they're starting there uh, for, for SARS-2. So we're starting to see a lot more trials, but I mean, we just on the ethics side of things, even if you vaccinate people, do you challenge people um, at the same time with virus to make sure that your virus, that your vaccine works properly? Could you um, this clarify is that? Like, um, do you mean literally give them the like coronavirus after you vaccinate them? Yeah, so I mean, that's something that I think people are gonna start talking about soon because um, yeah, unless you have a good animal model and good safety and efficacy trials, uh, you really don't know if your vaccine works well or not. So um, because I think the case fatality rate is on the lower side and you know we're starting to see people who think that if they're young they won't have a severe disease or, or things like that there are talks about people yeah um basically being kind of like guinea pigs yeah. um for, for humanity yeah and to clarify that um the reason for that is because it the idea is that it speeds up the timeline of testing the vaccine because the alternative is that you just wait to see eventually if people um, develop COVID or not. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so to speed it up and to really be be sure that the vaccine is, is working the way that it should, because it's also a waste of time to spend, you know, thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on vaccine development for something that in the end doesn't work. Emily, I'm curious if um, from through reading all the literature, if you see any holes of um, research questions that don't seem to be addressed, or if you feel like the scientific ecosystem has just like naturally filled all the um, subfields of understanding coronavirus? Um, there's still so many gaps, I think. And um, another limitation to this type of research is um, it's c classified as a biosafety level three virus, I think. It kind of depends on who you talk to and there's no global consensus on, on where these viruses need to be handled. but it does seem that that they're mostly being used in the biosafety level three, which is less of a hassle than a BSL-4, but does still require, you know, specific um, types of PPE, which we know are, are quite lacking at the moment. Um, they require special laboratories and also special training. So this also puts a, a bit of a limit on the type of research that can be done. So a lot of people who 
work with other types of viruses who have access to a BSL-3 are just dropping everything and focusing on on SARS. And it's re- it's been really cool. You know, people are publishing in these, you know, like bioarchive and preprint places. And even people on Twitter, scientists are sharing their protocols on Twitter so that people can um, improve their titrations and, and all of these things. So so that's really cool and has been kind of a positive, positive thing. Um, in this kind of dark time. I have to say that I have been very impressed at how quickly like people have jumped to start mm-hmm. like testing these things and how they're coordinating with each other. Um, yeah, it's like we yeah, it's really awesome. brought everyone together in a strange way. That's uh, true. Yeah. So Emily, thank you so much. That was really informative for our listeners out there. Um, you can see the daily reports from the COVID-19 literature surveillance team at COVID19LST.org. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so Emily. much guys for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Journal Club, a new dance and music venue that has opened up nearest to your local scientific institution. Whether you're looking to swap germs with a Ebola girl or to go wild with an animal model man, you can find them at Journal Club.